Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning knowing how dependent we are on you. So I pray that this morning you use your word to transform each of us in Christ-likeness. And it's in, his son, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I feel like I need to address an elephant in the room. Last week, I made two predictions. I predicted that I would catch the cold that my family had, and I predicted that they'd be all out of sympathy. Um, one of the predictions held true. The other did not. They were much more sympathetic to me than I was to them. I say that to say uh, the AV system is going to have to do a lot of work this morning. Uh, the Lord in His kindness has brought my voice back yesterday, so I'm thankful for that. This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think that's somewhere around page 1015, more or less, somewhere in that area. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. A triangle is a shape with three sides. See, no one's writing that in their notes. I'm going to assume that you came in here this morning knowing that a triangle is a shape with three sides. I appreciate it. I got some knowing nods there, um, but I assume that we all know that. Here's another thing that you may know. A very basic definition of the word loneliness is when you're sad because you feel alone. Again, no one's writing that down. We all know, whether we use those exact words or not, we all know what loneliness is. All right, we're off to a good start. We all know what triangles are. We all know what loneliness is. I haven't lost you in the first minute of the sermon. This is good. This is promising. Let me ask you something. Do you know what a triangle is in the same way that you know what loneliness is? Here's a philosophical question for you. The answer, at least how Jonathan Edwards would answer the question, is no, you do not. Edwards, whom I'd argue with him, brilliant mind, proposed that there's different types of knowledge. 
There's intellectually understanding something, knowing it to be true in your mind, and then there's believing something to the extent that it actually changes your life, has an impact on your actions, your motivations, your passions, your affections. Just think back to our example, our triangle and loneliness. Again, we all know what a triangle is intellectually, but it's very unlikely that your knowledge of triangles stirs your affections such that it impacts your life in any way. Put a different way, your intellectual grasp of the three-sidedness of a triangle is not evidenced in how you live your life. Your friends, neighbors, people who know you don't say, now there's someone who knows how many sides a triangle has. I would hope not. You have weird friends otherwise. Loneliness, on the other hand, I think we all know what it means to be lonely on a very different level. It's not just an intellectual thing. We probably, unless you've lived a just unbelievably blessed life, have probably felt lonely before. And because of that understanding of loneliness, your knowledge of that exists at a level that it actually impacts your actions. You've probably been lonely before, and so therefore that may cause you to have empathy for the person standing all by themselves in the corner of the room, and you go and reach out to them, right? Your knowledge of what it means to be lonely changes your actions. Maybe less positively, because you've been lonely before, you guard yourself against ever feeling that again in the way that you cultivate relationships. Again, the point being, your knowledge your intellectual understanding, your comprehension of loneliness is just very different than your understanding of triangles. As you might imagine, the point that I'm trying to make today has nothing to do with geometry. It has nothing to do with social anxiety. The metaphor is meant to help us understand what is meant in 1 Peter when he talks about a living hope, an active faith, faith put into practice. You see, if we are truly putting our hope fully in the completed work of Christ and the promise of his triumphant return, this ought to change the way that we live. What we believe about the gospel should be evidenced in how we behave in our day-to-day life. I'd say there's many who would say that they trust in Christ, but that trust isn't seen in their actions. I'd suggest that there's two major errors, especially at a church like ours, that someone may make about the relationship between what you believe and how you behave. The first error is a confidence in Christ that doesn't result in any change in conduct. Put another way, you may know the Bible inside and out. You may be able to recite off the top of your head chapter and verse in multiple translations, the ESV, the King James, the NIV, the message because you were feeling experimental in college. You may know the Bible. You may know doctrine. You may know all the nuances of the theological debates and have strong opinions about who's right and who's wrong and why. 
You may not just know all the facts of the Bible, you may be able to put it all together and understand it as one story of redemption. But for some, that intellectual knowledge belongs to the same category as your knowledge of the number of sides that a triangle has. You know your Bible, but that knowledge never makes it from your brain to your heart and your hands such that it's evidenced in your life. The confidence that you claim to have in your beliefs never makes it to your conduct. Maybe that description hits a little too close to home for you this morning. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're saying, yeah, Dave, get them. <laughs> you, you tell them. Well, don't get too comfortable, friends. There's another error that is especially dangerous in a church like ours, and that's placing your confidence in your conduct and not in Christ. You might be making this error, well-intentioned as it may be, if you're more concerned about good behavior than you are about the gospel. If you're putting your confidence in how you behave, how you act, instead of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then your beliefs are not connected to your behavior at all. You have to be careful that we keep the main thing the main thing. Far too many people, Christian behavior has eclipsed Christ in their version of Christianity. All right, now that I've ticked off everybody, if those are two errors that we may make in the connection between belief and behavior, how then should we live? The question of how our beliefs change our behaviors is precisely what Peter is addressing in this passage. Now, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 14 through 21, but before we get into that, before we get into kind of the meat, let's look quickly at verse 13, because here Peter makes the connection between believing and behaving, between doctrine and doing. If you remember last week when we looked at 1 Peter 3 through 12, Peter was sharing rich doctrinal truths about the gospel. And here, in verse 13, he tells us to put that truth into action. See, in the first word of verse 13, therefore, it's an old saying in biblical interpretation, anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it there for? The word therefore is a way of saying, the thing I'm about to tell you is because of the thing that I just told you. Peter's connecting the action, the practical application, the how then should you live, the behaviors, he's connecting that, he's basing that, he's grounding that on the doctrinal truths that he just shared, saying, in light of what I just said, you ought to believe, here's how you ought to behave. Don't mix up that order of operations. The main imperative that Peter is giving in this verse is to set our hope fully in our future inheritance, and that's what the rest of this passage talks about. And he tells us a couple ways that we need to approach this task. He says that we should be sober-minded. In this context, it means clear-headed, right? It means um, have clarity of thought in what you're about to do. And he tells us to prepare our minds for action. Um, English translation misses 
or at least the ESV anyways, misses how colorful uh, the language that Peter uses here. He actually says it's, it's more like gird up your loins. It's not something, at least I don't say that every day. You have to remember in Peter's day, like men generally wore robes and tunics. Um, I've never done such a thing, but as I would imagine, um, they may look nice, but it'd be difficult to fight or to do serious, strenuous work when wearing a long, flowing robe. And so, before men in those days uh, prepared to do something hard work, they would take the robe and they'd tuck it up into their belt and basically, ta-da, they invented pants. <laughs> they're, ready, they're ready to rock and roll. They're ready to, they're ready to do some work. To modernize it, it would be like saying, let's roll up the sleeves of our mind. Right? We all understand what that means. When someone's rolling up their sleeves, it's like, okay, it's time to do some real hard work. So Peter, having just shared life-changing doctrinal truth in the passages before, says, all right, let's be clear-headed. Let's roll up the sleeves of our minds. Let's get to work. So we look at the remainder of the text Peter is going to be answering the question, how should believers behave? If you like giving titles to your notes, scratch out where it says triangles and write, how should believers behave? This morning we're going to be looking at two ways that believers must behave. In verses 14 through 16, we will see that believers must faithfully model the Father's holiness. And in verses 17 through 21, we will see that believers must fearfully rely on Christ's righteousness. Start with the first point. Believers must faithfully model the Father's holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You'll notice throughout the passage we're going to look at today, Peter continues to go back to this father-child analogy. And that makes sense, right? Remember earlier in 1 Peter, he's talking about being adopted sons and daughters. He's talking about our inheritance. He's talking about being heirs. He uses this family metaphor. We are sons and daughters if we're in Christ of the Father. And here, he's telling us what it means to be an obedient child of the Father. To explain exactly what he means, Peter sets up a contrast. There's the passions of your former ignorance on one side, And there's the holiness of God, the Father, on the other side. I think for most of us, it's probably easier to understand the the don't side of that. Like, don't do this, do this. It's easier to understand maybe the thing we're not supposed to be doing, being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. This phrase, it's used by Peter elsewhere. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. Your former ignorance... Um, that refers to the debased evil lusts that ruled you before you were born again. So, if we're truly putting our faith in Christ, we cannot allow ourselves to be conformed, shaped, 
molded, or influenced by the sinful desires that once ruled our hearts. And Peter contrasts that. He says, don't do that. Instead, be holy in all of your conduct. And he doesn't leave the standard of holiness undefined. He says, you are to be holy like the one who called you is holy. I don't know about you, but I think this passage would be a little more comforting if Peter said, you shall be holy like I, Peter, am holy. It's a much more comfortable standard, right? The Peter who all throughout the Gospels, is, it seems like every time you turn around, Christ is rebuking him for some boneheaded behavior. Like, yeah, you know what? That's a standard of holiness, Lord. I think I, I, think I can do that. I'm not perfect, but I'm probably not going to lop some guy's ear off with a sword. Okay. But that's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, be holy like I, Peter, am holy. He says, be holy like God is holy. The standard of holiness that we're to strive for is God himself. That's a high bar. That is a perfectly high bar. We need to understand what's meant by holiness. Holiness is a very broad and expansive theological concept. Um, My wife recently finished teaching a women's seminar on holiness, and I joked with her that she had six hours to explain something that I've got one bullet point in a sermon to try to get across. I'm going to do my best. To understand this passage, I think there's three things we need to understand about holiness. First, what is holiness in the first place? Two simple definitions, set apart, morally pure. Both of those definitions are anchored in who God is. <clears throat> set apart. There is nothing, there is no one who is more set apart than God. God is infinitely distinct, greater than, apart from all created things. He's in a category all by himself. And so, like our Father is set apart To be a Christian is to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct from all other people. For example, when the people of Israel are called to be holy in Leviticus 19.2, the context is live in a way that is markedly different than the unbelievers who are around you. So you think about Peter's audience, elect exiles, right? Christians living in a world that hate the truth of the gospel. The command is the same. Be different from the practices and beliefs and behaviors of those around you. The command for Christians to behave and act differently than the world is a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian life. Holiness, as I mentioned, also refers to moral and ethical purity. Again, it finds its definition in God. God, by his very nature, is without stain or blemish. He does not sin. He will not sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And likewise, if we're in Christ, we should hate sin, <clears throat> should avoid sin. When we do sin, we should repent of sin. We should desire to live pure lives. We should desire to have our passions, our will, conformed to God's will. If our confidence is in the gospel, our desire should be to grow in holiness. That's one thing we have to understand about holiness to understand is the difference between 
positional holiness and the process of holiness. I like how Kevin DeYoung describes it. He says, when it comes to holiness, Christians can say, I've already got it completely, and I'm still growing in it. It's the difference between positional holiness and the process of growing in holiness. Positionally, if you're in Christ, you're already holy. You've got it. God has already set you apart as a distinct people. That was done by his power alone. It had nothing to do with you. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, every one of God's children have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, if you're in Christ, you're already holy. It has nothing to do with anything you did. It's the Father's doing, by His grace, for His glory. And also, if you're in Christ, you can trust the promises in Scripture that we're guaranteed one day at Christ's second coming to be radically transformed into perfect holiness. Right? So in one sense, if you're in Christ, holiness is already a thing that God has done for you. Yet, if you look at your life, certainly if I look at my life, I think you would agree that you fall short of the standard of holiness. Even though God has declared that you're holy, even though he's promised that you will be glorified and made perfectly holy, he also progressively makes you holy over the course of your life on earth. This process is known as sanctification. It's a lifelong process, just as Robert said in his prayer, of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Third, we need to understand how sanctification works. Growing in holiness works. It is first and foremost a work of the Holy Spirit. saw this back in 1 Peter 1-2. The Spirit accomplishes our sanctification. In Romans 8-13, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can put off sin. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the work of the Holy Spirit who works to progressively make us more holy. Philippians 2.13 says that God is the one who does the work of sanctification within you. So yes, the work of sanctification is due to the internal working of the Holy Spirit. So how do we reconcile that with this passage and many other passages in Scripture that command us to pursue holiness, to work at holiness? It's quite a quandary. Well, even though sanctification is accomplished by God, even though your growth in holiness is the work of God, that doesn't mean that we sit back and passively wait for it to happen. God has commanded us to be actively involved in our sanctification through faith and obedience, submission to the Word, and participation in the means of grace. God is the one doing the work, yet He commands us to be working. I like how John Murray makes sense of this. I thought this was really helpful. God working in us to make us holy is not negated by our work, nor is our work in making ourselves holy negated because God works. Neither is this a relationship of cooperation. It's if God does his part and we do our part, and by cooperating together, you know, the 50% and 50% combine to 100% and we're holy. God, you do your part, I'll do my part. The relationship is that because God works, 
We work. All of the work towards holiness on our part is the result of God working in us. Give an even more practical illustration than that. This comes from a Scottish Puritan. All of the science and effort and labor of men cannot on their own cause a single stalk of corn to grow from the ground. If we believe what Scripture says is true, and we do, it says that it's the Lord who brings the harvest. It's the Lord who causes plants to grow. Yet nobody would say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. In other words, to be a Christian, we are to desire and strive after holiness. We are to obey the Lord in holiness. And in doing so, we actually show that our confidence is true. We, sh- we show that we believe when the Lord promises that he will grow us in holiness, that that's a thing that he'll accomplish in us. We show by our faith, we don't say that standard is too high, I don't believe it, so I'm not going to do anything about it. We show by our work that we trust that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. All the holiness is not just some burden we're saddled with. It's also a great privilege that we have as children of the Father. As his children, we have the privilege and the honor of bearing a family resemblance. Remember, if you think back to when we were in the book of Genesis, that seems like a long time ago, Justin taught on the image of God. When God created us, he created us in his image so that we could represent him to his creation. We can show, albeit imperfectly, what God is like. But because of sin, that image has been corrupted such that we no longer display, we no longer fully show the family resemblance. It's all grimed up and mucked up by sin. But as Christians, when we grow in holiness, that sin starts to get cleaned up. The distortion of God's image starts to be progressively removed. God transforms us over the course of our lives into greater and greater degrees of his glory so that we can be image bearers. If we are truly children of God, our desire should be to be like God. Clarify my comments. Our desire should be to be like God in his holiness, as he's commanded us to do. We should want to share in that family trait. We should view the command to be holy as I'm holy, not as some task that's too hard, so why even bother, but as a great privilege that we're given and something that we can have confidence that God will accomplish. To be a Christian is to be committed to an ongoing, lifelong pursuit of holiness. It means relying on God and then committing yourself to the process of sanctification fleeing from sin, repenting when you do sin, conquering fleshly desire, obeying the Lord's commands, living a life that's pleasing to Him. Peter's point here, if your confidence is indeed in future grace, if you're not finding your confidence in the things of this world, then you should desire to be nothing like this world. If your confidence is in the Father, then you should want your will to be shaped and molded by the Father's will. 
So the first way that Peter says that believers should behave is by faithfully modeling the Father's holiness. This brings us to the second way that believers must behave. Believers must fearfully rely on Christ's righteousness. This starts in verse 17 and continues through verse 21. I'll I'll admit, uh, let me be very transparent, this passage right here, this part of the text, um, it's confusing. And I say that as someone who just spent a week with this text. I've been thinking about how to best communicate it to y'all. And here's what I think would make the most sense. Indulge me for just five minutes. I'm going to play the role of tour guide just for a minute. Imagine that we're on one of those Naples cruises that goes and sails by all of the houses that I certainly can't afford. And oh, there's that one over there and that one over there. That's what I'm going to do for just a moment. There's three landmarks I'm going to point out. I'm going to briefly describe them, and then we're going to sail past them. Trust me, once we do all three, we're going to circle back and we're going to put it all together so that way we can understand what Peter's saying and what it would have meant in the original meaning and not how we understand it through our modern glasses. All right, the first landmark as your tour guide that I'd like to point you to is the main command of conducting yourself with fear. Fear of the Lord throughout Scripture, generally, I'm overly simplifying, conveys two general meanings. First, there's the literal meaning, fear. It's right there there in the the label. This does not mean abject terror. It doesn't mean like cowering and like paralyzing fear. The type of confidence and peace that Peter is promising us throughout this book doesn't reconcile with the idea of like abject terror uh, marking our lives. No, this is a healthy fear. It's the best way I can explain this. Reminds me of the first time that I went axe throwing. Been axe throwing a few times. Been axe throwing with the elders here, so they're all giggling because I'm not very good at it. But the first time I went axe throwing was a team building at work. Some of you are familiar with the phrase mandatory fun. It was one of those things. Um, None of us had ever been before. And at some point, I think I made like the dad joke that you would expect to the woman working the range where I said, oh man, I hope they're giving you hazard pay for working with all these newbies. Like you must be terrified. And I'll never forget her answer. She said, I don't have to worry about first timers. You're all still afraid of the axe. It's the people who are here every single week who have an unhealthy familiarity with what they're doing, who aren't afraid of getting cut by the axe anymore. They're the menaces. They're the ones I have to watch out for. And that was really interesting. That's the type of fear that we must maintain. We can't be so familiar with God our Father that we forget that He's the righteous judge of the universe. Fear of the Lord in the Bible also means behaving with appropriate on reverence. It means, again, not taking our relationship with God for granted, not forgetting the awesomeness of God. Peter's telling us not to have a domesticated view of the king of the universe. To paraphrase the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter's telling us 
God is good, but he is not safe. We must not let our status as sons and daughters to cause us to view God casually. We cannot let our familiarity with the Father to cause us to lose an appropriate fear of his perfect justice and righteous wrath. All right, we're going to sail past that landmark. I promise we're going to bring it all together in a minute. The next thing I want to point out, verse 17. It says that the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. What does that mean? I think something that Christians sometimes get wrong about the gospel is that there's a misconception that once we're in Christ, our sin is no longer offensive to God. Friends, your sins as a Christian still are very offensive to God. They still deserve wrath. The good news of the gospel is not that God has decided to let bygones be bygones on that whole sin thing, like He just got over it. The good news of the gospel is that the wrath that you deserve for your sins has been poured out on Christ instead of you. When it comes to your deeds, when it comes to your actions, when it comes to the things you do, your conduct... God does not show partiality. Just because you're in Christ does not mean that your sinful behaviors and actions don't grieve the Lord and don't cause Him to despise your sin. We're going to sail on. Sit with that discomfort for a second. Finally, in verse 18, it says, You've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You can make a mistake here. You can think that Peter's repeating himself. You can think, you know, earlier he said, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And now he's saying, you know, that you've been ransomed from the feudal ways uh, inherited from your forefathers. And think like, okay, he's saying the same thing. He's talking about like, don't do sinful stuff. Don't do bad stuff anymore. That's actually not what he's saying. He has something else entirely in mind. And that's how his original audience would have understood it. Again, Passions of your former ignorance all throughout the New Testament, that meant abhorrent, immoral, scandalous behavior. That's not what Peter is saying here. The word that's translated in the ESV is the ways inherited by your forefathers. It's a single word in the Greek. And it would have been understood by Peter's audience to mean morally commendable behavior. Interestingly, every, this is a common word in antiquity, every instance of this word being used in both Gentile and Jewish literature up until the point that Peter used the word right here in this letter, every other time, it was a compliment. It was a good thing. It meant the traditional ways that members of polite society behaved. It meant manners and customs and behavior that the culture said, yeah, that's what good people do. It was the things that were done in a society that were generally recognized to be the basis for a stable and good society. 
At great risk to myself, let me modernize the saying. To Peter's audience, this would be like saying good old-fashioned values. Like giving up your seat on the bus to a lady. Like taking off your hat when you sit down to eat. Like saying please and thank you. Referring to your elders as sir or ma'am or Mr. and Mrs. Morally admirable behavior. That's what Peter is saying you've been ransomed from. Don't get me wrong. None of those things are sinful. Like, we teach our kids to do all those things. You'll notice Peter doesn't say you've been ransomed from the sinful things that have been passed down. He says they're futile. They don't get the job done. They're useless. They're worthless. All right. (laughs) We've now completed our loop of the tour. We're coming back in. You can tip me later. Let's tie it all together. Peter is telling you that all of your good conduct will not save you. All of our right living, all of our rule following, all of our morally commendable behavior and good manners, if that's what you are counting on for your salvation, you need to be very afraid of a father who judges the deeds of men impartially. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Holy Father. So if you're trusting in your righteous living, if you're trusting in your behaviors, you have good reason to fear the wrath of the righteous judge of the universe. (laughs) Friends, the heart of the gospel, don't miss this. Yes, you were called to holy lives, But don't get confused, your clean-cut, straight-laced, commendable living is not what saves you. All of those things are futile to save you. What's the alternative? If our good deeds and good conduct are futile before an awesome God who impartially judges the deeds of all men, what chance do we have? Peter gives us that answer starting in verse 19. While your works... Are futile, your good deeds are futile, the precious blood of Christ, the perfectly holy and spotless Lamb, cannot fail. Peter's saying instead of trusting in the traditions that have been passed down to you from your earthly father, fathers rather, trust in the saving atonement of Christ that was planned before the foundation of the world, enacted in history via the incarnation of Christ and accomplished via the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is where Christians are to put our hope, in Christ alone. If you believe in the gospel, that belief must result in you fearfully relying on Christ and His righteousness alone for your righteousness. Peter is saying in this passage that if you truly believe in the promises of future glory, if indeed that is where your hope is found, 
Then, this is how you're called to behave during your brief time on earth. Your confidence should lead to conduct. Go for a moment back to our good friend Jonathan Edwards, writing on the Christian life. Edwards used the metaphor of a fire. Imagine for me in a moment, or for a moment, that you're camping, and not like any of this glamping stuff, like real tent camping. I know for some of you, this is a, more of a stretch than others. And now, in fact, hold on a second. You're camping, and you're not camping in Florida. You're camping somewhere where, like, it gets cold. In the middle of nowhere, night has fallen, it's cold and it's dark. What a welcome thing a campfire would be, right? See, in that setting, the fire would provide two things for you. First, it'd provide light, illumination, the ability to safely and clearly see things for what they are. And second, the fire would provide heat, life-giving, life-sustaining warmth. Friends, if you claim the name of Christ, you need to ensure that your faith consists of both light and heat. Your faith, yes, should be informed by the light of the knowledge of God's Word. Good, solid biblical doctrine provides illumination by which you can see the truth clearly. But your faith cannot be all light and no heat. If your knowledge of the divine things of God doesn't kindle your affections such that it causes heart-driven obedience to God's Word, if it doesn't cause you to pursue holiness like the Father is holy, if it doesn't cause you to stop trusting in your own works but trust in the completed work of Christ, it could be that you know a lot about Christ, but you don't actually know Christ. Our behaviors must match our beliefs. If you believe in the future glory, Peter's saying right here, you must faithfully model the Father's holiness and you must fearfully rely on Christ. I realize this is a heavy text. What Peter writes here is weighty. It's serious and it's sobering. So in light of this text, I want to leave you with Three questions that I'd invite you to meditate on, not just today, but maybe over the coming week. Again, heavy text, not an easy one. Question number one, are you, let me personalize it, am I pursuing holiness? Question to ask yourself, am I pursuing holiness? Am I being intentional about growing in godliness? As I mentioned, yes, growing in holiness is accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit, yet that does not mean that we are to wait passively. Scripture repeatedly calls us to exert effort and take action towards holiness. The Spirit accomplishes sanctification, but there are prescribed means of grace that God gives us that the Spirit employs to grow us in holiness. I'm going to list three of those means of grace. As you think about this question, if maybe you don't love what your honest answer is, here's three means of grace that God has given us to grow in holiness. 
The first is God's Word, reading and meditating on it, not as an academic textbook, but on the authoritative Word of the Lord. I mentioned that my wife recently taught us women's seminar on holiness, and one day after much study, she said, you know, so much of what Scripture says about growing in holiness comes down to being in God's Word. Absolutely. If you want to grow in your obedience to God's will, it just makes sense that you'd want to know what God's will is. And you don't have to guess. God has, (laughs) through His divine revelation, given you His Word. If you want to grow in holiness, feast on the Word. Second, God has given us the means of grace that is prayer. Sure, you pray. Are you praying specifically that the Lord grows you in holiness? Do you have a regular pattern in your prayer life of confessing sin, repenting, and asking the Lord's help in transforming your sinful desires into godly desires? Like, are you actually praying to be made holy? And third, a third means of grace that the Lord has given us to grow in holiness is the local church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says that the local church works together to build up the body of Christ to grow in Christlikeness. The local church is one of the primary means that the Lord has given us to grow in holiness. If you're not regularly participating in the corporate gathering, I'd encourage you to see the gathering in the light of it being a way that the Lord has prescribed for you to grow in Christlikeness. When we gather together to be fed by the Word, practice the ordinances, pray together, worship together, that is a way that the Lord has given us to grow in Christlikeness. I'd also encourage you, if you haven't already, to pursue formal church membership. It's a practical way you can pursue holiness. The Lord has established the local church as a primary means of growing in Christ-likeness. When we covenant to care for one another, right? When we receive new members and they agree to the covenant, what they're doing is they're promising, we're promising together to care for one another, to love one another, to put one another's highest good um, above our own, to fight for one another's highest good, We are covenanting to help one another grow in holiness. Like, don't think that growing in holiness is an individual thing. It is something that we do as a community together. That is what the local church does. Question number two to ask prayerfully. Am I truly trusting in Christ. Is your trust fully in Christ, or are you trusting on your good works and your behavior? And for some, it may not even be that overt. You know enough to know, no, 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 I'm not saying I don't trust Christ, I trust myself. But maybe you're trusting in Christ plus your good works. You know, Christ 
got me most of the way there, but I'm going I'm I'm to help them out a little bit by my good conduct and my right living. Again, hear me well. I'm not saying good works and virtuous behavior are bad. Far from it. Good works and virtuous behavior are awesome. They're the fruit that everyone should see that shows that you're growing in holiness. But just be careful that you're not confusing the root and the fruit. Be careful that you're not making the outcome the main thing. Again, if you ask yourself that question and maybe you're not happy with your honest answer, I invite you to go to the Word. Not generally, but specifically, go to the Word and meditate on the Gospel. Who Christ is, who you are, what Christ has done, what it means to be a child of God. Restore the light of your faith, the doctrinal truth of the Gospel, so that you can accurately understand why we're to behave in those ways. It doesn't cause our salvation. Our salvation is because of Christ's righteousness and not our own. All right, question three. Am I sharing my hope? You know, we've talked a lot in the last two weeks because this is a uh, big concern for Peter about hope, living with hope. Last week, we saw the hope that comes from knowing the future glories, our future inheritance. Today, we saw the hope that we can have that Christ uh, has accomplished our redemption and that the Holy Spirit will accomplish our sanctification. We saw that we don't have to rely on our own good behavior. That's not where we put our hope. And if you have that hope this morning, hallelujah. But I also want to give you some sobering news. Most of the people around you, most of your friends, neighbors, coworkers, uh, maybe some of, maybe in some cases, most of your family members, they don't have a hope in the world. All around us, there are hopeless people. Sure, some hide it better than others. But as you get to know people, my guess is you have the same experience as me. As people really share what's on their hearts, as they trust that you care about them as a person and not a project, you'll find that there's an awful lot of people who hide it well, but they have a crisis of confidence brewing. In the still hours when they're all alone, they know deep down in their heart of their hopeless condition. One of the reasons I love Southwest Florida is I love who ends up here. It's a gospel gold mine. I've only been here for five years, so maybe, maybe I've misjudged the situation, but at least the people that I've talked to, the experiences that I've had, both as a resident and an and a, a, a elder here, is that there's lots of reasons why people move here, but there's two main reasons. The first, people move here because they're retiring. Right? They've worked and labored their whole life, and there's this dream one day of retiring, the streets of gold, sandy beaches. One day they're going to end up here, and all their problems are going to go away. 
More recently, another major reason why people move here is that they believe that their lives would be better with a change in local politics. I think broadly speaking, those are two major reasons why in the year 2023 someone ends up in Naples, Florida. Now, whether someone ends up here because they want to bask in the sunshine or bask in the freedom, when you talk to people, what you'll find is that they very quickly realize that Naples, Florida, is not the restored heaven and earth. All of the morning tea times, all the afternoons on Fifth Avenue, all the sunsets on the beach will not ease the growing sense of hopelessness that those who don't know the hope of Christ have. All of the freedom that people expect to have because of the change in local politics, that feeling of freedom never comes because their biggest problem was not who was leading the state or who was leading the country, but who was ruling their life themselves. Christians, like, look around. The harvest is here. You have a community all around you that is marked by false hope, that's marked by deep hopelessness, and they know it. And you have the only answer. You know the only true hope of mankind, the good news that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to earth, lived this perfect life of holiness that we can only try to somewhat live up to, and then in his death took on the wrath that we all deserve because of our deeds that don't measure up to the standard the wrath that sinners deserve. And then Christ rose again three days days later, ascended to heaven, and he's coming back. And we can believe that, and we can trust in that. And that is our hope. That is our blessed hope. That is our only hope. And that is a hope that the world around you needs to hear. They need to see it in your life, as evidenced by a life that's striving to be like the Father in your holiness, a life that trusts fully in what Christ has done, and not your own good, upstanding moral behavior. So they need to see it in your life, but they need to hear it from your mouth. One of the dumbest things that anyone has ever said, I'm not overstating at all, in the history of the world, ever, 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 is preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. No, 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 use words. Tell the people around you about the hope that you have in Christ. You live amongst a hopeless people, and you have hope, so tell them about the hope that you have. That's a blessed hope. It's our only hope. And that hope ought to shape how we live. Our beliefs ought to drive how we behave. Our confidence in Christ is the basis for our Christian conduct. Let's pray together. Father, you are awesome and great and majestic. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfectly holy. Father, help us to grow in holiness, not so that we can say that we've earned our salvation, but so that we can show that our true hope is in Christ alone. 
Help us to put all of our confidence in Christ. Help us to share our confidence in Christ with people who need to hear it. Help us to do these things for your glory and not ours. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.